Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, uh, I invite you to open with me to Genesis chapter 1. So the first chapter, the first book in the Bible. And while you're turning there, uh, let me just say thank you to First Baptist Church New Orleans on so many different levels. I thank God for this church. Um, as you are hosting the IMB and missionaries around this room together, I am thankful. Um, but not just hosting, as you are giving. As I look at what you've given in the past to this global impact offering, what you're giving now, in the days ahead, and how your giving is making it possible for people who are in this room right now, a year from now, to be on the other side of the world, making the gospel known among people who've never heard it. I thank God for your giving, your generous and sacrificial giving toward that end. And the way you're doing that there and here, and what a wonderful time in the context of a worship gathering to think about all the ways uh, that you all are impacting this city. And so I'm thankful for the spread of the gospel through this church in the city of New Orleans. And then if I could just bring it down to the most personal level, uh, thank you First Baptist Church New Orleans for your impact in my life. When my wife Heather and I first moved down to New Orleans, this is the first place we got plugged in to this local church. And you ministered to us and we uh, worshipped with you all. We're fed the word by uh, your pastor who you know you are a blessed church with uh, Dr. David Crosby. And I, I just, I'm so thankful for your influence in our lives during those formative initial months in our time in New Orleans. So for all these reasons, I thank my God for this church. Um, and even thinking about what you all are doing in this city, uh, in the next few minutes, I want to I lift our eyes together in the word to the nation's so far beyond New Orleans, but I want you to hear from the very beginning, I don't want you to hear anything I say as detracting or pulling away from zeal to reach New Orleans. I hope this is just in addition to zeal to reach New Orleans, that your eyes are also lifted to the nations uh, this morning. So local ministry and local mission is totally necessary. The needs in New Orleans, you know, are great. And I praise God for all the ways you're ministering to needs in New Orleans. We've been given a command to make disciples of all the nations, but that command's going to play out most naturally right where we live. And so praise God for multiplied ministry across New Orleans. Local ministry mission is totally necessary. At the same time, uh, a global mission is tragically neglected. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I, was, I was near the northern part of Yemen not long ago. So 20 to 30 million people in the northern part of Yemen. Do you know how many Christians there are in, in the northern part of Yemen? Out of 8 to 10 million people, there's, there's or 20 to 30 million people there is uh, there's 20 or 30 believers in northern Yemen. So, more, more believers in uh, some small groups 
than there are in all of northern Yemen. So that's, that's what I mean by tragically neglected. And, and I want to show you in the word of God this morning that God desires you to be a part of changing that. You say, well, no, 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 don't you mean that God desires to use these, these missionaries that are going there? God desires to use them to be a part of changing that. And this is where we have, we've got to get beyond in the church, looking at global mission as a compartmentalized program in the church for a select few people who are called to that. And this is the whole point of Scripture. I want to show you in God's Word this morning that global mission is not a compartmentalized program in the church for a select few people. It's the purpose for which we all have been created. It's the purpose for which you have been created right where you're sitting right now. I want you to see that God has created your life right where you are sitting to be a part of making his glory known in the world, including places like the northern part of Yemen. And so I want to start in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, the most foundational place possible. And I want to show you a passage and then show you how it's reflected all throughout the rest of this book. I will never forget where I was sitting, the place where I was sitting when the, for the first time. I'd grown up in the church. I had spent time reading, even teaching the Bible. But I'd never seen the picture from cover to cover in Scripture that I'm about to show you of God's desire to use my life to make His glory known among all the nations. And I remember where I was sitting when, I, when someone first showed me this in the Word, and I just sat there with my jaw on the ground thinking, this changes everything. And I've prayed coming into these few moments in the Word this morning that God would create that kind of moment in hearts and minds across this room right now. That's not something I can, that's not a kind of moment in your heart or mind that I can manufacture or create. But I'm trusting that the Word of God has the power to do that. So I want to read this passage and then I want us to think about it together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The Bible says that God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. All right, here at the very beginning of the Bible, we see God creating man for a distinct purpose. God creating you and me for a distinct purpose. And I believe here in the word it's twofold. So just, just see it very simply. God created man, on one hand, to enjoy his grace in a relationship with him. God creates man, you and me, in his image. Unlike anything else 
in all creation. So all the beauty and the grandeur of mountains and valleys and hills and oceans and rivers and beasts of the field, birds of the air, all the beauty of creation, yet you and I are distinct from everything else because you and I are created in the image of God with the capacity to know God, with the capacity to relate to God, made like God in that sense, certainly not as God, but with the capacity to have relationship with God. To think even, my, my time with the Lord this morning, I, I was in Psalm 139 in my quiet time, and just to, to see, God, you've searched me, you know me, you've formed my inward parts. God, so just let this soak in right where you're sitting. God made you, he crafted you, he formed you, that you might know him, that you might relate to him, that you might enjoy him and delight in him and a relationship with him as as a reflection of his image. When I look at uh, my family, and people will see my kids, and look at my two-year-old son, and, uh, and they'll say, he's your spitting image. To think that there's a sense in which you and I, like you, right where you're sitting, you're the spitting image of God. Amen. It's a breathtaking thought. And the first thing God did in verse 28, he says he blessed them. This is the pure, unadulterated blessing of God. God on high, pouring out, showering man with his goodness and his grace and his mercy. We're created to know God, to have relationship with God. This is an awesome thought. But follow this text. That's not where it stops. So the purpose of God in creating man was not just that we might enjoy his grace and relationship with him. There's more. We were also created, as we enjoy His grace, to extend His glory all throughout the earth. The first thing God says to man, bless them, and He said to him, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply the earth, fill it, subdue it. So basically God's saying, I've created you in my image with the capacity to know me and relate to me. Now multiply my image everywhere on the earth. Make my grace known everywhere on the earth for the spread of my glory among all people. So God has created us to know him and exalt him, to enjoy him and in his grace and to extend his glory to the ends of the earth. So it's not just about us enjoying his grace, it's about us extending his glory. God has created us for his own glory in the world. Now just in case you're not convinced by the this passage in the first chapter of the Bible. Let me, let me give you a picture of what happens after this. And we don't have time to turn to all these places. But just picture the storyline of the Bible. Because right after this, sin enters the world, mars the image of God in man. Within a few chapters, we see God's judgment coming down and a flood on the world. And yet we see God blessing his people with grace for the spread of his glory. Just a few chapters later, you get to Genesis chapter 12, and God takes an idolater named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, pure, unadulterated grace, so that you might know me. He enters into a covenant with Abraham. So I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Then he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So you see it again, God blessing Abraham to enjoy his grace and relationship with him and then to extend his glory. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham was set up by God to be a conduit of God's blessing. As Abraham would receive the blessing of God, he would reflect the blessing of God to all the peoples of the earth. Enjoy my grace, extend my glory throughout the world. 
That's what God says to Abraham. Then Abraham had a son. His name was? This is the audience participation part of our program. So, so Abraham had a son. His name was? Isaac, God says the same thing to Isaac. Genesis chapter 26, verse 4. He says, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky. And through your offspring, Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So he's going to bless him with all these descendants. And the purpose is so that all the nations of the earth will receive the blessing of God. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Genesis chapter 28. God says to Jacob, verse 14. In Genesis chapter 28, your descendants are going to be like the dust of the earth. They're going to spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring, Jacob. Now that's a stout promise when you realize Jacob was a single guy at that point. He didn't even have a wife. And he's going to have more kids than he knows what to do with. That's good news for a single guy in that day. So the whole picture is this is extravagant blessing from God, grace from God. For what purpose? For the extravagant glory of God being made known among all the peoples of the earth. God's blessing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob for his own glory, for God's own glory. He's doing this. Extravagant grace for extravagant glory. So that's just the first book in the Bible. Then you move to the next book, Exodus. And we see God's people as slaves in Egypt. And he miraculously, by his grace, delivers them out of Egypt through plague after plague after plague, culminating in the Passover. And then as they're fleeing Egypt, he leads them to the Red Sea with the Egyptian army coming after them. Now, if you're a military strategist, this is not very wise. You don't go to a dead end in front of a huge body of water when an army is about to overtake you. So why? Ask the question why. Why is God doing what he's doing? Why did God lead his his people, the Israelites, to the, this dead end in the middle of the Red Sea, or in front of the Red Sea, with the Egyptian army about to overtake them. Well, he tells us why. Exodus chapter 14, verse 4 says, God says, I am going to gain glory for myself. When I show my grace and my power, I'm going to split the sea in half. I'm going to lead you through on dry land. Dry land. You're going to look in your rearview mirrors. You're going to see the water come crashing down on the Egyptians. And they will know, the nations will know that I am the Lord when I show you grace like this. God did that, extravagant grace to his people, split the sea in half, sent them through on dry land. Why did he do it? For the sake of his glory among the Egyptians. Then he leads them to Mount Sinai where they receive his law. Why do we have the law? Why do we have the word of God as his people? And the answer Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6 gives us is that we have this good gift from God, his word, so that when we follow it, we will show his glory and his wisdom to the nations around us. God has given us grace for the spread of his glory. So this is how the Bible's starting. And then it just continues through all the stories. Remember when, uh, remember when God brought his people into the promised land. He promised this land to them, and the first major city in the promised land was Jericho, this huge city with massive walls all the way around it. And Joshua was the leader of God's people at that point. Joshua chapter 5 uh, tells us he was wandering outside the city of Jericho one night, wondering how are we going to take the city. And basically, he had five military options available to him in that day. One, he could try to take the Israelite army over the walls of Jericho. Two, they could try to go under the walls. Three, they could try to break through the walls. Four, they could send a decoy in, kind of like a Trojan horse type thing. Or five, they could starve the people inside the walls and make them come out. So he had five military options available to him. Over, under, through, send the decoy in, starve and make them come out. And God comes to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5, and he says, here's the battle plan. And what is the battle plan? God says, uh... I mean, Joshua's thinking, over, under, through, decoy, starve him. What does he want us to do? And God says, uh, get your trumpet players. <laughs> and uh, uh, 
tell them to play some songs uh, for a few days. And then after they've played some tunes, uh, then uh, here's the kicker. One day you're going to shout really loud. And uh, the walls of Jericho will fall down and then you'll take the city. That's weird. If you're Joshua, you're wanting a second opinion at this point. Like, can you imagine? Just put yourself in his shoes. You're about to go back to an army that, by the way, has been training for a generation for war. You're about to go back and tell them, uh, guys, I know you've been working hard, uh, uh, but we're, we're going we're to give this to the music guys uh, today. So uh, no offense to the music guys. Deep respect for the music guys. But just, uh, I mean, just not what the army was, was thinking. Uh, and so why? Why was God doing that? Ask the question, why? why? Why is God doing that? Here's what he's doing. He's, he's doing what he does throughout Scripture. God's orchestrating the events of his people to, so that when he shows extravagant grace, it'll be clear only he receives extravagant glory for what's happened. Amen. Let me tell you what you, you don't see in Joshua chapter 6. When the people of God take the city of Jericho, just like God said to take it, you don't see all the Israelites going up to the trumpet players telling them what an incredible job they did that day. <laughs> Ralph, I've never heard you play that well. Harry, you hit the high C. That was the best you've ever played. No, you see the people on their faces saying only God could have done this. God designed this for the sake of his glory. It's story after story. My, my kids are studying uh, Daniel right now. And so to see those stories in Daniel, what's the point? Why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3. Why does God let these three Hebrew boys be thrown into a fiery furnace? For their devotion to him. Here's why. If you don't get to the end of the story, verse 28 and 29, you miss the point. It wasn't just so we have a good story to tell about faith. It's because when those guys come out on the other side of that furnace without a drop of sweat on their brow, a pagan king declares in a pagan land that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is able to save his people and is worthy of all glory. God did that for his own glory. Same thing in Daniel chapter 6. Uh, Daniel Praying every day, and he's thrown into a den of lions. Why? So that'll make you think twice before you have your quiet time tomorrow morning. This is what happens when, when you seek after the Lord. He lets you be thrown into a den of lions. Why would God do that? If you don't get to the end of the story, you miss the point. Daniel chapter 6, verse 25 and 26. What happens is after Daniel comes out of that night with the lions and he's alive, some other guys get thrown in. And again, another pagan king declares the God of Daniel deserves the praise of all people in the land. God did that for his own glory. God showed great grace, extravagant grace for his extravagant glory. So it's the stories, it's the psalms. I mean, God's written a whole song book for us to give him glory out of. God inspired that. He said, I want you to give me glory in all these ways. And all those psalms we love. So Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me, he guides me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Why does God lead and guide you as a good shepherd? He does it for the sake of his own name. Psalm 67, it's a prayer for harvest blessing. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that your ways may be known on earth and your saving power known among the nations. Did you hear it? May God be gracious to us so that your glory may be made known among all the nations. So it's the Psalms, it's the prophets. Oh, think about Think about Isaiah 43. You remember those words when God speaks to his people? Beautiful 
words. Some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture from God to His people. He says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, because I am the Lord your God, and you are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. Extravagant grace. Then you get to verse 7. It says, you're the people whom I've created for my glory among the nations. Extravagant grace for extravagant glory. He even says, I was in my uh, quiet time recently in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36. God's speaking to his people about what he's done among them and what he's going to do among them. And listen to what he says. He says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am doing these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone it says, I will show the holiness of my great name, the name you have profaned among the nations, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Did you hear that? This is God speaking to his people, and he literally says, when I bless you, it's not for your sake. It's for my sake. It's not for your sake I'm doing these things, for the sake of my holy name among the nations. You say, well, that... That's Old Testament. Is that really the case in the New Testament? Absolutely it is. It's no coincidence that every gospel account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection ends with go, make disciples of where? All the nations. Make this good news known in all the nations. Mark 16, 15. Go and preach the good news to all creation. Luke 24, 47 through 49. Jesus died so that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached among all the nations, which is why Luke, when he picks up that uh, Luke 24 in Acts chapter 1, he says, you'll receive power. Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Talk about grace. Christian, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. The power of God's Spirit inside of you. Why? So you'll be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So you'll be a witness extending his glory all over the world. The rest of the New Testament just unfolds this picture of the gospel spreading, the glory of God spreading from city to city and from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth, all the way to the end of the book where all of history is headed. God has written a story into history and it all ends with every nation, tribe, tongue, and people in Revelation chapter 7 bowing around his throne, looking to him, saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's orchestrated all of history to put his glory on display in the end for the grace he's given to his people. From cover to cover in scripture, God is in the business of blessing his people with extravagant grace for the spread of his extravagant glory to all peoples. So see it. God, from cover to cover in Scripture, is passionate about his own glory. And he saves us and he blesses us for his own glory. Now, some of you might be saying, well, are, are you saying that God has an ulterior motive in blessing me? And I'm not saying that. The Bible is saying that from cover to cover. And that rubs some people wrong. Are you saying that God is self-centered? That God lives to exalt himself? Well, 
if that rubs you wrong, I would just ask the follow-up question, who else would you rather him exalt? You? Me? Someone? Something else? At any moment, were God to exalt someone or something else, he'd no longer be the God who's worthy of all exaltation. And he is. It's what it means for him to be God. Everything centers around him. Everything culminates in him. He alone is glorious, period. And he knows that. And he wants all the nations to know that. Now, we wrestle with this. God is centered on God. You're not sure what to think about that. Let me just remind you. The greatest news in all the world is how God has chosen to exalt himself. How has God chosen to exalt himself? God's chosen to exalt himself by saving sinners like you and me. God's chosen to exalt himself by sending his son to pay the price for our sins and rise from the dead in victory over sin that we might know him and in knowing him to enjoy him and enjoying him to exalt him. It's the beauty of the gospel. And I don't want to presume for a second that everyone in this room has received this gospel. And so I invite you, if you're not a follower of Christ, I pray that this moment might be the moment where you see for the first time how much God on high, the God who created the universe, loves you and desires relationship with you. So much so that he has sent his son to die on a cross, to pay the price for all of your sin and all of your rebellion against God. And not only has he paid the price in his death on a cross, but he has risen from the dead in victory over sin and death so that you and anyone in the world and anyone in all history who simply turns from your sin, confesses that before God, confesses your need for his grace and your love and puts your faith in him, you can be forgiven of all your sin and reconciled to God forever to know him and enjoy him and to exalt him. I invite you today for the first time to enjoy God's grace in a relationship with him. And then when you do, then when you do, to realize that grace is not just for you. We sometimes sing songs in the church like when Jesus died on the cross, he died just for me. And while I in no way want to take away from the personal nature of God's love for every single one of us, the reality is clear in Scripture. He didn't die just for you. He died, Luke 24, 47 through 49, so the repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in all the nations, among all the peoples. And today there's about 2.8 billion people. There's about 2.8 billion people who've never even heard of God's love for them in Christ. They're all across northern Yemen and all sorts of other places. They've never even heard. And so see it. If this is the purpose of God in Scripture, to bless His people for the spread of His glory among all peoples, then we would be utterly foolish to sit back and say, well, some people are going to make God's glory known in all nations, but not me. This is the purpose 
Christian, for which you have been saved. It's the purpose for which you've been created. It's the purpose for which you have breath right now. And so I challenge you this morning, not based on my words, President Ryan B. or anything, based on the word of God, I challenge you. In all the ways you've already heard, to pray accordingly. To let your praying every day be filled with a passion for God's glory among the nations. You look at your prayer life this week, this last month, this last year. Is there reflection of a passion for God's glory in all nations? And you're praying. Are you pleading for God's gospel and His glory to spread to the nations, to specific people groups in the world? Do you see it today in your house, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow night with your family? You have an opportunity from your knees to be a part of spreading the glory of God among the nations by pleading for people's hearts to come to Christ. For people to be reached with the gospel. Pray daily. And and yes, in all the ways we just heard about today to give sacrificially why think about asking the question in scripture now asking in our lives why has God put us in one of the wealthiest places on the planet I know we don't always feel wealthy but we we got clean water and we got food we got clothes and we got shelter and we got transportation we're already extremely wealthy compared to everybody in the world add on top of that medical care and some of the wealthiest people to ever walk planet Earth. So do we need to feel guilty for that? No, no. But we got to ask the question, why? Why have we been given so much? And clearly, Scripture isn't saying we've been given so much so we can indulge in the pleasures and pursuits and possessions of this world. No, that's foolishness. Those things are all going to burn up in the end. We've been given wealth not so we can indulge in the things of this world. We've been given wealth for the spread of God's worship in the world. So we might give so that others can go and take the gospel. We give so that people around the world can hear the gospel for the first time to sell houses and lands and possessions and to make sacrifices in our lives for the spread of his glory. Now that makes sense in light of what this book says. To give, I challenge you, based on God's word, to give sacrificially. Pray daily, passionately. And go wisely. Like look for the opportunities there, there to go in your life. I know that there's a tendency, we're going to talk about this tonight, there's a tendency to look at some of these missionaries around the room and think, oh, I, this is, they're very different from me. I couldn't do what they're doing. Do not let the adversary convince you with that lie. These are ordinary brothers and sisters whom God has called in their lives to leave jobs behind leave their family members here in the United States and leave comforts and to go to other cultures for the spread of the gospel and God I'm convinced is calling many others to do that and Think about it. Maybe not just in your life to leave your job for the spread of the gospel in the world, but are there ways God might call you to leverage your job for the spread of the gospel in the world? 
Leverage your, your opportunities. I, I think about students in this room and the opportunities that are there for you to study around the world in the middle of unreached peoples. There are universities around the world that will pay full scholarships to students from America to come and study there. And while you study there, to live for the glory of Christ in those cities. What if the default is not just a university here? What's if a university in the Middle East? It makes sense if God really wants His glory known among the nations. And jobs. I think about one couple in the church I pastored. He's an engineer. She's a teacher. And they said, Pastor, uh, we figured out we can do engineering and teaching in this part of the world where there's little gospel access. So I don't know if it counts as being a missionary, but I think we're going to move there and do engineering and teaching there. I said, I don't care what it counts as. You guys are going. And there are opportunities for that all over the world. What if God has designed the globalization of today's marketplace for the spread of His glory among the nations? Even when you think about retirement. Uncle Sam will pay money for people to play golf. He'll also pay the same money for people to spread the gospel in different parts of the world. I'm, I beg of you not to spend the last years of your life just coasting things out until you get to heaven. Spend the last of your, years of your life making them count for the spread of glory of God among the nations. This is the reason for which we have breath. May it consume us. May we open our eyes to the fact that this isn't just a compartmentalized program of the church for a select few people. This is the purpose for which we have breath in the planet. Let's pray accordingly. Let's give sacrifice. Let's go wisely. Look for opportunities to go short-term, mid-term, long-term, whatever it might be, in anticipation of the day when this whole purpose is going to come to completion in the very end. We're going to gather around his throne, and we're going to give him praise from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Let's live for that day. Let's die for that day. Let's breathe for that day. Let's pray. Let's give. Let's go for that day. And let's not waste our lives any day from now until then on anything less than that purpose for which God has created us. Will you pray with me? God, I pray for our hearts and minds and lives and families, couples, singles in this room, trusting that you desire deep relationship with them. I pray for anyone who has not trusted in you and begun relationship with you, that today would be the day where that happens. And then, God, for all who are in relationship with you, God, that you would not let us miss the purpose for which we are here. And God, that you would wean us off of, pull us away from all the purposes this world would say we should live for and God, we pray that your purpose would drive us, your passion for your glory among the nations. And we pray that you would show us extravagant grace for the sake of your extravagant glory among all the peoples of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.